Acts chapter 20, beginning in verse 17. From Miletus he sent to Ephesus and called for the elders of the church. And when they had come to him, he said to them, You know from the first day that I came to Asia in what manner I always lived among you, serving the Lord with all humility, with many tears and trials which happened to me by the plotting of the Jews, how I kept back nothing that was helpful, but proclaimed it to you and taught you publicly and from house to house, testifying to Jews and also to Greeks repentance toward God and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. And see, now I go bound in the Spirit to Jerusalem, not knowing the things that will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies in every city, saying, Chains and tribulations await me. But none of these things move me, nor do I count my life dear to myself, so that I may finish my race with joy and the ministry which I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And indeed, now I know that you all, among whom I have gone, preaching the kingdom of God, will see my face no more. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all men. For I have not shunned to declare to you the whole counsel of God. Therefore, take heed to yourselves and to all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which He purchased with His own blood. For I know this, that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Also, from among yourselves, men will rise up, speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after themselves. Therefore, watch and remember that for three years I did not cease to warn every one night and day with tears. So now, brethren, I commend you to God and to the Word of His grace, which is able to build you up and give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I mentioned last Sunday night something that I, that I imagine we all have recognized and, and could see. The role of pastor has really changed over the years. Well, what I mean by changed, it has changed in a couple of ways. One, it has changed in regard to its standing in the community. I, I would imagine there was a day. We may have to go back many years, but there was a day when the pastor of the local church ha- had standing, had, had respect given to him by virtue of his office. It, in fact, I would imagine that most pastors of a city were far well known, more well known by the majority of the population. In fact, in many ways, they, they would have been viewed among those in the community that were, that were leaders. Their, their opinions mattered. Again, it was, it was a respected position. That's not as much the case anymore. Uh, uh, for a couple of reasons. One, as a culture has in, become increasingly secular, then I think the role of pastor has definitely been viewed in accordance with that as not meaningful to the culture. In fact, there would be many in our own culture today who would say, not only is my role not important in the overall life of the community in which we live, 
It may even be detrimental. It may be hard to believe, but there would be many out there who would say that a guy like me doing what I do is dangerous. So the nature of this thing has changed. It's also changed from our side. Pastors at one time looked the part, right? Let me ask you this. How many of you remember a day when if you had gone to see your pastor at any given day during the week, he was in a coat and tie, a suit? Anybody, you remember that? You remember those days? All right. I'll tell you right now, those are long gone. All right, don't expect me to do that. Now, when I preach either a wedding or a funeral or a Sunday morning sermon, all right, okay? But there, there was a time in which there was, it was a professionalism, right, about what we do. In fact, many would have viewed the role of pastor as as a profession. Doctors, lawyers, teachers, pastors. It would have come with its own kind of suit, right? Its own kind of uniform. Let me ask you this. How many of you think in today's world you could, you could find yourself in a room full of a hundred pastors and not recognize half of them as pastors? Right? Skinny jeans. Tattoos, the, the, the manner of dress that, that they may engage in. Now, let's be fair to some of them. Some of them may be coming out of rather difficult backgrounds, but others, others of my kind, have adopted a persona, a, a more culturally relevant look in an attempt to identify right, with everybody that's, that's out there. And so, that there, there has now been this, this change in the role of pastor. And so, with that has then come a lot of discussion about, you know, what is a pastor supposed to be doing? What do pastors do? Quite frankly, it is a question maybe you have wondered and yet, you just didn't want to ask, right? Because you think, well, shouldn't I already know this, and I don't want to look foolish for asking. So what do pastors do? So tonight, we turn our attention to this question. We've been looking at the role of leadership in the life of the church. We've been spending quite a bit of time on the nature of pastor, elder, and I've explained the, that those are synonymous terms. In fact, we come across even another one here, overseer. Pastor, elder, overseer, they're all in this chapter. They're all synonyms. They're all talking about the same position. And it is a way to describe a particular office in the life of the church, an office that does have great significance. God has, has, has given the church these who would serve as pastors, elders. We are to be a blessing to the church. We are uh, charged with a certain level of leadership. Dare I say, in a Southern Baptist congregation, a certain kind of authority, all right? Don't worry, still congregational, okay? Don't get stuck on that word. But a certain kind of authority, clearly in Scripture anyway, and we even see it in this text tonight. So, so, so this, this is an important position, and we need to make sure that we understand the office. The office of pastor, what is expected uh, of those who would take upon themselves or those upon whom it would be thrust the title, the office of pastor slash 
elder. And so we've, we've tried to understand the role. We looked last week at the qualifications, and so tonight we're going to take a look at the expectations. What are the expectations for this office? You'll note there in your notes, I've given you at first just a simple definition. I think just a simple way to define what pastors, elders do. Pastors, elders, shepherd Christ's church through the ministry of the Word, serving as an example to the church, and offering oversight for the church. So, at its simplest, I mean, I think this is a fairly straightforward, drawn-from-the-words-of-Scripture kind of definition, uh, basic job description. This is what this is what pastors, elders do. And, you, and you'll notice some features here, features like centered on the Word and exercising oversight. That doesn't mean sole authority, but it does mean occupying a position of influence and authority of a type uh, in, in the discharging of the ministry. And as I mentioned last week, you know, the, the, the lion's share of material that we have in the New Testament about the role of pastor-elder is about character traits. You can tell the Bible is far more concerned with the character of the pastor than, say, the skill set of the pastor, which, which is, I think, opposite of what you may find from a lot of churches today. There would be an expectation that pastors meet a certain set of skills many of which are not necessarily in the Bible. Though a church can say, we still want our pastor to have these skills, nonetheless, the Bible doesn't have a whole lot to say about, say, our job description. We noted last week, it does say we have to be apt to teach. There has to be a capability on our part to teach the Word, to engage in sound theological discussion, to not only be able to understand the Word, but then to be able to communicate it in such a way that God's people receive it, understand it. So tonight we're going to walk through what I think is, a, is one of the best texts in the New Testament about this topic. As Paul addresses the elders in Ephesus, I think he lays out, not only in his own example, but in the specific charge that begins in verse 28, both his example, what he did, and then what he charges these guys to do, I think he lays out for us a pretty good picture of what pastors should be doing. What are the expectations placed upon pastors? Now, we'll note along the way, this is not just something where, you know, you all are listening to me preach at myself. I mean, in some ways, that's what it is, all right? This is one of those cases that's really odd where as the pastor, I am preaching at myself, okay? So if it sounds like I'm talking to myself, that's why, okay? And you get to see it. But like we mentioned last week, some of this, while there is unique application to the role of pastor, it doesn't mean that everybody else is, is now has, has no obligation to the things that we will be talking about. And so we'll note that as we go along the way, that really these words should encourage us in our own ministry to the church and with the church. Just as a reminder about the background here, you know, the, the starting of the church at Ephesus was not without some controversy. You may recall, as Paul goes into Ephesus, and just to give the short and sweet of it, 
and is preaching the gospel, he had, the, the gospel has such an impact on Ephesus that the pagans are converted, many of them are converted, and they're taking all of their books and paraphernalia related to the pagan practices of the Greek gods, and they're burning them. Now you think, oh, wow, well, that's great. Unless you own a business in Greece, in Ephesus, that's catering to people buying paraphernalia for Greek gods, right? In particular, the goddess Diana. And so this this creates a massive problem in the city of Ephesus. So much so that a riot starts. And Paul is actually spirited away, so to speak. Paul has to be uh, taken away. Beck and I had a chance many years ago to go to Ephesus, and they point out what they claim is a spot where they hid and protected Paul from this riot, from this mob of people that had gathered in the Colosseum there in Ephesus. And the Colosseum could hold, still can by the way, 20,000 people. Just put that in context. Have you ever made somebody mad? It's uncomfortable, right? Anybody here ever made somebody mad? A little uncomfortable? Have you ever seen somebody kind of react in anger to such a degree that you thought, whoa? Have you ever made 20,000 people mad? So that's a big deal, right? So this is the, this is the context in which Paul begins the church in Ephesus, but the gospel takes hold here in Ephesus. So much so that it it is argued the church at Ephesus rivaled the church in Jerusalem in terms of of impact and significance. I mean, we know Paul started it. We know Timothy is going to pastor it. And there's also evidence that John the Apostle pastored it. That's a pretty good pedigree, right? I mean, for a church. You know, to say, you know, to say that you had those guys being the ones who started and sustained your church. So Ephesus was a significant church. It was influential. Uh, and, and Paul has a real fruitful ministry among them, even though there's a, there's a lot of trouble to begin with. But Paul develops a close and meaningful relationship with them. Now, Paul then begins to journey to Jerusalem. And though, though if you've never read the rest of the book of Acts, you may not know this, he's really journeying what's going to end up being to his death. He is going to be martyred for the sake of the gospel. And before he leaves this area, he calls the elders of Ephesus to him. Again, I think think there was a close relationship that had developed. And Paul wants to, I guess, really lay out a final exhortation. He cares much about this church. This church... Ephesus was a cosmopolitan city. I mean, it was a city that Cleopatra visited. You know, so this was a big-time city. It had a major library in it. It was a major port city. And so this was a strategic church. And so Paul lays out in these parting words what I would say are clear instruction to the church. Here's what leadership looks like. Here's what pastor elders should be doing. He takes himself as an example, and then he charges the guys there in Ephesus with what they should be doing. And I think he lays out 
what are four, at least four, duties of the pastor. Four duties of the pastor. If you want to take notes, you can fill in the blanks. Number one, model the gospel. What should pastors be doing? Modeling the gospel. In other words, pastors should be, in, should be examples. Pa- pastors, and that doesn't mean we're going to be perfect. It doesn't mean we are without our own faults and weaknesses. But, but it means in terms of maturity, in terms of character, in terms of how we handle the Word, how the Word handles us, we should serve as models. Notice what, how Paul begins his words here in verse 18. And when they, meaning the elders, had come to him, him meaning Paul, he said to them, You know from the first day that I came to Asia, in what manner I always lived among you, serving the Lord with all humility, with many tears and trials, which happened to me by the plotting of the Jews, how I kept nothing back that was helpful. Paul Paul then goes on to to outline then the, the manner in which he had conducted his ministry among the folks there in Ephesus. So his very first words, but before he gives them a charge... He first begins by pointing to his own example. He says, so, before I tell you everything else that I think you should be doing as elders, first remember the manner in which I lived among you, the nature of my example. And and notice how he puts this. You know the manner in which I lived among you. My faith was evident. My character was evident. My testimony was clear among you. I, I had a reputation. I, I, I was faithful. I was obedient. I served the Lord with all humility. I, I did so in, in tears. I faced the trials that came my way. Now, just as an aside here, since it's in the Bible, and Paul says, I serve the Lord with all humility, that's good. You and I should probably be careful about telling people how humble we are, right? It comes across odd if I tell you one of my best qualities is I'm super humble, right? In fact, you've never met anybody as humble as me. That's how humble I am, right? So that would come across as odd. But when, you know, when Paul does it, this is genuine. We're not reading 21st century back into him. This is genuine. He's saying, look, I, 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 was, I was humble in my service, meaning I served you under the authority of God. I recognized that my capacity to be effective among you was not based upon myself, but upon God working through me. Then, notice what he says, and we'll, we'll be bouncing back and forth a little bit in Paul's statement here. Notice what he says then in verse 28. As then he turns to address them, he says, therefore, take heed to yourselves. In other words, given all, given all that I've just said to you about myself and about my example and about how I have functioned in my role among you, how I've preached faithfully, how I've served humbly, how I've been bold and courageous. If you were to read, again, verses 18 through 27, and Paul's saying, look, I've not kept anything back. And so then he turns it on these guys and says, so take heed to yourself. Examine yourselves. Be mindful then of your own example. Take heed to yourselves and to the flock. So so your example does 
matter. So I, 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 would, I would say this is an important part of the ministry of the pastor. Pastor elders should be models. I think this is implied when Paul gives us in 1 Timothy 3 the list of qualifications. I should be able to serve as an example of what faith and obedience looks like. Those who serve you in pastoral roles should be examples. They should be models of the gospel. It's not the only time Paul has done this. Paul tells Timothy this, by the way. He tells Timothy to be an example. In fact, he says, be an example in your youth is what he says. To be an example. He does this to the folks in Thessalonica when he writes to them in chapter 2 of of the first letter. And and he he, he, he reminds them, you are mindful of the manner in which I conducted myself among you. It's just kind of been the way Paul does things. We are to model the gospel. Number two, these, by the way, are not in order of, of importance. They're more in kind of order of how they're, they're coming here in the text. Proclaim the Word. Proclaim the Word. This is all throughout Paul's charge. And, and, and before we jump into this, let's, let's just make this crystal clear so that there's no doubt where I'm coming from so you can know this far and away is the primary duty of pastors and elders. This, to rightly handle the Word. So much so that if you've got a guy who can do anything else and may be really good at all kinds of other ministries. Maybe he's great at administration. Maybe he's really good at visitation. Maybe he's even really good at counseling. But if he is not faithful with the Word, he's not a good pastor. This is premier in in regard to the role and expectation of the pastor that he would handle the Word, the manner in which I proclaim the Word. So so again, you notice like in verse 20, where he's talking about his own example, which includes this, how I kept nothing back that was helpful, but proclaimed it to you, taught you publicly and from house to house, testifying to Jews and also to Greeks, repentance toward God and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. Jump down to verse 27. For I have not shunned to declare to you the whole counsel of God. Jump down to verse 32. So now, brethren, I commend you to God and to the Word of His grace, which is able to build you up and give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified. So again, you find this language all throughout this charge. The expectation placed upon the pastor, elder, pastors, elders of church, is is that they would proclaim the Word clearly, boldly, compassionately, straightforwardly, teach the Word. Again, I think it is is perhaps the most important quality or expectation or role, if if you would. If you're talking about expectations, this has got to be up there at the very top. In fact, you, you find it in Paul's own instructions to Timothy, where, where he says, preach the Word in season and out of season. I love that language, by the way. 
It gives me great justification in the way I do what I do. You know what that means? It means when people want to hear the Bible, what should I do? Preach the Bible. When people don't want to hear the Bible, what should I do? Still preach the Bible, right? So that makes my job description really simple, doesn't it? It's really simple. In season, out of season. There are times, there may be seasons, in which there is an openness to the gospel, to the word being proclaimed. There's probably far more times where it is out of season, right? But the expectation placed upon the pastor is that he would faithfully proclaim the word Do you mind if I add a few more cents to my two cents worth? All right? I don't know what you're going to do about it. I guess you get up and walk out. All right? I don't know what you're going to do, but I'm going to, I'm going to do it. Let me also suggest that you, we need to be very careful on this, that when I say proclaim the Word, when I say handle the Word, when I say preach, when I talk about the way in which the Bible is dealt with, the fact is you can walk in to any evangelical church in the country And a guy, or maybe a woman, is going to stand up, is going to open a Bible in some form, is going to read something out of it, and then say stuff. Just because somebody reads a Bible, mentions some verses, and then says stuff, it doesn't mean it's a biblical message. So we have to be really careful here, because there could be people that would... That, would, that could litter a sermon with references to the Bible. That may not still be a biblical message. It's not just preaching the Word, teaching the Word. This is an expectation of pastors, elders, but the manner in which the Word is handled. That's why the lion's share of the food that will be delivered to your table is going to be verse by verse through books of the Bible. Now, that's not going to be all that I do. It's not what I'm doing on Sunday nights currently, right? Right? I'll do topics and series and answer questions. You know, we'll do a variety of things, but still, you look back over time, it is the consistent exposition of the Word of God, I think, is the way the Word needs to be handled. All right, so we model the gospel, proclaim the truth. Number three, shepherd the people. Shepherd the people. Notice again what it says in verse 28. Again, now, now, now Paul is getting directly to the charge, to the folks in Ephesus. Therefore, take heed to yourselves and to all the flock, among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. There's the word overseers. It's the same word that shows up in 1 Timothy 3 when Paul says, those who desire the, you know, the office of overseer, desires a, a good thing. Those who, some, you may see the word bishop. That's the word there. Notice what what they are to do. To shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. This, by the way, is the only time in the New Testament the word is used as a verb like this. This is the only time it's used. To pastor, to shepherd. This is where the title comes from, you know, that we're most comfortable with for my position as, as pastor comes from this word. And again, you'll notice what is the pretty straightforward expectation. What do pastors do? The pastor. Brilliant, right? What do pastors do? Pastors, pastor. That's what they do. Pastors are to pastor. They're to shepherd. 
Now, what's implied in that? Well, you notice in the language here, there's the implication of oversight, right? So there's management, leadership, administration. So there's a sense in which pastors, elders are responsible for general oversight management of the life of the church. I would also argue this goes a little bit further, that the shepherd is also tending to the flock, right? Pastors, elders are loving, caring. And this, by the way, is where ministries such as visiting… You know, I've I've made much of the fact uh, over the last few weeks, the Bible never says pastors should do funerals or that pastors have to do weddings, right? But it's appropriate for pastors to do both. Why? Because we're shepherds. Because both of these involve attending to, right? They're very different kinds of attention, weddings and funerals, but this this is appropriate for pastors to do this kind of thing, Uh, to to be there to shepherd a young couple as they enter in uh, to, to this phase of life to be there to to shepherd a family as they walk through a a new phase of life. This is part of what pastors, elders are to be doing. We are are to be pastoring. We are to be shepherding the flock. I, I would argue that this, especially in today's world, would include ministries of counseling, which I do much of, right? Counseling and whether it's it's a bit ongoing, disciple making. This is, this is all, I think, ministries of shepherding, of, of love and care for the flock. Then I want to go to number four. It's connected to number three. Quite frankly, three is connected to number two, meaning that the manner in which I think a shepherd shepherds is according to the Word. Okay? But number four, defend the church. So we shepherd the people, We model the the gospel, proclaim the truth, shepherd the people, and defend the church. You can't get out of this with the imagery of shepherd, because we're all familiar with, we all know one famous shepherd, right? From the Old Testament? You you recall a guy from the Old Testament who was a shepherd? Anybody? David. All right, okay, yeah, all right. So David, you remember any famous stories about David? Did David ever have to do anything with animals that wanted to come get the flock, right? Yeah. Yeah, so, so, so David was one who protected the flock. Interestingly enough, it is David who is first described in similar terms. His relationship with Israel was like as a shepherd. And what, what, was, what was a primary concern here? That, that David as a warrior was a protector, a defender of the, the, the dangers posed to the flock. So, so notice what he says here. Notice what Paul says. There, there's no way that the language of that Old Testament stuff is not brought in here as, as Paul speaks to the folks in Ephesus. For I know this, that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Also from among yourselves, men will rise up speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after themselves. Therefore, watch and remember that for three years I did not cease to warn everyone night and day with tears. So he's issuing a warning here, and and notice 
where the warning is coming from or what it's about. I think I've I've mentioned this before. We've talked some about this in going through 1 Corinthians. The single greatest threat to the church is from within the church. That's hard for us to imagine sometimes, I think. Because how do we feel, and especially in our American culture these days, where, where it seems like, you know, there is attack after attack against our rights, right? That bothers us deeply. We see infringement upon what we would argue is our religious freedom. In fact, many of us probably feel the same way. It seems like everybody else has religious freedom, but we don't have religious freedom, right? Sometimes how it feels. We, in fact, we may would assume these are threats to the church. You don't have one instance, not one instance, in the history of the church where outside secular threats did more damage than internal heretical threats. Those were far and away. Look look at the times of greatest persecution. Do you know the times of greatest growth in the church are times when they were feeding people to the lions? Do you know know where the church is growing the fastest in the world today? Where it's facing the greatest persecution. I'm not saying I want external threats. I'm just saying these are not really a threat to the church. What's a threat to the church? A threat to the church is when some guy decides to start a television station catering toward Christians and spews nothing but heresy from it for the last 30 years. That's a threat. Talking about TBN, if you're wondering, all right? I say nothing but... Every now and then they threw in a legit guy, which I think was only more dangerous. Because if you turn on that TV station and you see Charles Stanley, and then the next guy is Benny Hinn? Really? If you see somebody like David Jeremiah, right, who generally is orthodox, and then the next guy is Jesse Duplantis? My goodness. I think this is exactly what he's talking about. What's the threat? Listen to me, church. What is the threat? Do you think there's a real threat to tabernacle that a Muslim would come in and convert us all to Islam? Are we worried about that? No. It's somebody with this book in his hand who maligns, misinterprets it. That's the greatest threat. And so when Paul says, watch it, wolves are going to come in. They're dressed up like sheep. They come from among you. Be mindful of it. Church cannot stand it. It is what rips the church apart. Internal threats from that which is heretical. So church, this is why I say I I am... I'm committed for a couple of reasons. One, I've, I've been doing this long enough where I'm just not going to mince words anymore, all right? I mean, so I'm just going to say things because, you know, the longer I do it, the less time I have to do it, so we're just going to say it plainly, okay? There are people out there you should not be listening to, and there are voices that claim to come from within the Christian community that are detrimental to your spiritual growth. It's not that it's neutral, that if you listen to them, you will go backwards, <laughs> if that were possible, all right? 
it's going to be detrimental. There are wolves in the evangelical church today. And I don't mind pointing them out. I think it's part of my duty. I think it's part of my job. Now, granted, I could stand to do it in a little more respectable way sometimes, maybe. But I do think it is my responsibility. It's, it's the responsibility of pastors, elders, that they would defend the church. Defend the church against those who would come in and try and ravage it. So again, I, you know, I think, boy, there's a lot of leeway here in these, in these qualities. When we talk about modeling the gospel, proclaiming the truth, shepherding the people, defending the church, there could be a, you know, a lot of nuances here. But I think this is a pretty straightforward job description. What is the role of the pastor? I think this is it. I think this is what pastors should be doing. Now, let me suggest, though, that in each of these four things, though there may not be responsibility on your shoulders to the same degree as the pastor, let me ask you, should you be an example of the faith? Yes. Yes, you should be an example of the faith. Should you be a knowledgeable defender of the Word of God? Absolutely. In other words, is it, do I, should I know the Bible for you? No. No. You, you should be proclaiming the truth. Now, is it going to be done in a formal sense like what I do? Perhaps not. But should you be faithfully handling the Word, rightly teaching that in perhaps more informal ways? Well, certainly. What about shepherding ministries? Are you supposed to love your brothers and sisters in Christ? Are you supposed to be offering care? Certainly. And what about defense? Is there any obligation on your part that before somebody may get to me with a question about so-and-so teaching such-and-such, and they're going to come to you first, are you prepared to take a slingshot to some wolves before they get to me? I think you should. I know sometimes you may want me to do your dirty work, all right? You got a good friend who's got somebody they're really jazzed about, and you say, oh, I don't know if they're good or not. Why don't you talk to the pastor, all right? Let him offend you, okay? Why don't you talk to the pastor? But the truth is, maybe we should all be a bit more courageous in saying, that's poison to your soul, and it's poison to the church of Christ. We need to be faithful to the Word. Yes, there's an expectation of these as they belong to me, but perhaps we recognize all of us have responsibility in these qualities. Let's pray together. Father God, we do thank You for gathering us again tonight. Grateful for time in Your Word. Grateful for the opportunities You give to us to serve one another as we serve You. And Lord, I, I just take a moment to pray for myself, to pray for the expectations placed upon me. I take them seriously. I am burdened by them, intimidated by them. But Father, I want to be faithful to them. Those who serve our church in pastoral roles, I pray, God, that, that they would know Your grace and wisdom and mercy as they exercise the duties assigned to them. Father, that we would be faithful to what Your Word says about these things, but that we all would be committed to what these qualities ultimately represent, which is just faithful, Bible-loving, Christ-centered Christianity. Give us boldness and courage and wisdom 
as we seek to influence others for the sake of Christ. We thank you for the week that is before us. Uh, We pray, God, that you would lead and guide us, that we might be faithful in all ways to what you have called us to be and what you have called us to do, that you might be glorified in it all. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.